Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump will soon arrive at Georgia jail to surrender. A crowd of protesters gathered at the jail. What are former president's latest moves in the case? The House Judiciary Committee thinks the Fulton County DA's 2020 election investigation has ventured too far into federal territory. Now they're investigating her motives. The aftermath of the death of Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin. The Russian president breaks his silence and the Ukrainian military takes advantage of the situation. Less domestic oil drilling to save the whales. The government reportedly plans to allow less drilling due to an agreement with environmental groups. Releasing radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean, Japan says it'll be doing this continually for the next three decades. And baseball's biggest two-way star can no longer pitch. But will an injured Shohei Otani continue to play as a hitter? Former President Trump is headed to Georgia this evening to surrender in the fourth indictment against him brought in the state of Georgia. NTD's Melina Wisecup is outside the jail where a crowd has gathered since early this morning. Melina, so tell us what's been going on. There is a very massive presence here outside of the Fulton County Jail, both with regards to protesters as well as media outlets who are highly anticipating the surrender of former President Trump as he makes his way here to this Georgia jail behind me. Trump is being charged with 13 charges, most of which are conspiracy charges. The district attorney here in Georgia accuses Trump of trying to use illegal tactics to challenge the election results here in the state of Georgia. We did get a chance to speak to some of the Trump supporters who have been out here all day in the heat who are very passionate about showing their support for the former president as he arrives this evening. We'll show you what they told us about why they're here today. We need this country saved. It, it needs to be saved right now, as everyone knows. Everyone can see, even though some won't admit it, it's going down and fast. So he has four years of proof that he can turn it around, and I believe he will. They're making the claim of illegality, and they never checked the reason that they're claiming the illegality. They're saying he, he, he questioned the election. So did we. So the, as I mentioned earlier, the presence is very high out here, both with regards to media and uh, protesters. So security has ramped up quite a bit. There are barricades lining the street here where all of the protesters and media are kind of lumped together here. And we did hear something that the Fulton County Jail is expecting to lock down even more with regards to security once the former president does arrive. Now, as for what's happened today here at the jailhouse, Mark Meadows, which is Trump's former chief of staff, he came here to surrender to his charges, which was quite a surprise because up to today, we didn't know whether or not Mark Meadows would even come to surrender, considering his lawyers tried to prevent this from happening because he is trying to move his case to a federal court. Ultimately, a judge blocked his lawyer's efforts to prevent his surrender by the end of this week. So we did see Mark Meadows come in and surrender today. He did have a mugshot taken just like the others. Now, another co-defendant in this case, Harrison Floyd, who is the leader of Black Voices for Trump, he was actually the 
first co-defendant that, that we're aware of that came here to surrender to the jail without first having a bail agreement in place, meaning that he now has to wait in the jail until that consent bond is made. Most of the time when the co-defendants did already have those consent bonds in place, it sped up the process a little bit. But his case, it was not like this, so he's still in the jail. It's unclear when he'll be released on that bail. Now, as for former President Trump, his lawyers are opposing a proposed October 23rd trial date because one of Trump's co-defendants did file to have a speedy trial here. Trump's lawyers filed saying they oppose this and they say that they, they want to separate Trump from any such request in the future. Trump also made a shakeup with his lawyer team today, replacing his lead attorney with an attorney here in Atlanta. All right, so tell us more about Trump's surrender. What else are you expecting to see? So the former president says he'll be here around 7.30 p.m. We expect it to be rather quick in and out, just like all of the other co-defendants, because Trump does have that consent bond agreement already in place. His cash bail is set at $200,000. This is the first time the former president will have to make a cash bail payment in any of these indictments. As for mugshots and fingerprints, the sheriff has continuously said that Trump will be treated just like any other co-defendant. However, we will have to wait and see how this plays out with regards to the process inside the jailhouse because Trump is different than other co-defendants. He does have Secret Service protection. So we're just here standing by waiting for 7.30 when Trump says he will arrive here at the jail. Steph? Thanks for that update, Melina. And we'll have live coverage of former President Trump sur surrendering at the Fulton County Jail in Georgia. That's on NTD's Capitol Report with Steve Lance right after our show tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll have real-time updates from our reporters in the field and expert analysis, so be sure to tune in. Next, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan has expressed concerns about whether the Georgia prosecutor's recent indictment was politically motivated. He wants answers to several questions about D.A. Fonnie Willis's investigation. NTD's legal correspondent has more on a letter he sent to Willis. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has indicted a former U.S. president, and the House Judiciary Committee is now investigating her motives. And here's why. In a five-page letter, Chairman Jim Jordan said Willis's indictment involved substantial federal interests, and he was concerned about whether her indictment was politically motivated. He said your office purportedly sent a letter to several Republican officials in Georgia requesting that they preserve documents relating to a matter of high priority that your office was investigating. Yet you did not bring charges until two and a half years later at a time when the campaign for the Republican presidential nomination is in full swing. In the letter, he points out other concerns. Willis launched a campaign fundraising website highlighting her election investigation just four days before the indictment was announced. The forewoman of the special grand jury went on a media tour bragging about her excitement to potentially subpoena Trump and swear him in. The Fulton County Court clerk released the indictment before the grand jury voted on it. Jordan says in the letter that he isn't surprised that people believe the prosecution is designed to interfere with the 2024 election. Willis requested a March 4, 2024 trial date, which he says is the day before the Super Tuesday presidential primary. It's also eight days before the Georgia presidential primary. What are the federal interests involved? Jordan lists several, including using state criminal law to regulate the actions of federal officers carrying out official duties, charging a former U.S. president, 
and whether she consulted with DOJ Special Counsel Jack Smith. To get answers to these concerns, Jordan requested all documents and communications related to her investigation, including communications with the DOJ, Smith, and other federal executive branch officials. Trump's former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and former Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Clark have both filed motions to have the case removed to a federal court. They also wanted the federal judge to block their state arrests. But the judge refused, saying there was no precedent for that. Willis strongly opposed the removal request, saying their arguments were baseless and meritless. The judge has scheduled a hearing for Monday. Meanwhile, Jordan gave Willis until 10 a.m. on September 7 to reply. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with Republican strategist and former Trump Advisory Board member Jason Meister for his take on Trump's Fulton County surrender. Jason, thanks so much for coming on our show. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. The world is watching closely today for Trump's surrender. It's a historic day. What's your initial response here? You saw last night Donald Trump did an interview with Tucker Carlson that reached over 230 million views. That's more views than any video uh, ever on social media. You had a Republican uh, Party that's been putting up candidates that are polling in the, the single digits. Uh, Ron DeSantis has been a complete disaster. His campaign has been a complete disaster. They cannot stop the Trump train. It's a freight train that's coming through, and these indictments, these arrests, and these raids on his private residence are only creating uh, what I would consider political rocket fuel for his campaign. I think you will see his polls continue to climb given this, uh, this latest arrest. And how do you think his surrender could impact the debate over election integrity and the weaponization of the government? Sure. You now will see that there's going to be discovery in Georgia, in Fulton County, and you're going to understand what happened in the 2020 election forced mail-in ballots across all the states in the country, uh, and you had the private sector, you had corporate America, you had social media giants, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, censoring Americans. Uh, you had 51 intelligence officers signing a document stating that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation, which we now know was completely authenticated. It was a real story that showed how Biden was corrupt. And we're now seeing how the Biden crime family was taking bribes from Kazakhstan, China, Ukraine, and Russia. And that was all censored in order to get Joe Biden into the White House. And so I think you're going to see that come out in the discovery in the, this latest uh, uh, case. And back to today's events, some conservative commentators and Trump supporters have joked about printing Trump's mugshot on T-shirts and say that they'll champion the image. How do you think Trump's mugshot will be received by his base? Do you think there's a chance it will be embraced by the MAGA movement and perhaps as a symbol of resistance? Oh, yeah, there's no question. This mugshot's going to go down in history. We're going to raise millions upon millions of dollars on this because this is a Democratic Party that has weaponized the Department of Justice in this country. They've had Soros DAs basically trying to take out their political opposition because they know they can't beat them at the ballot box. Remember, they, they weaponized COVID in 2020 to steal the election. Now they're using lawfare. Now, think about it. There's all these indictments coming down at, at one time um, as Trump is leading in the polls. I think you're going to see that Trump's poll numbers are going to be higher after today's arrest than Hunter Biden in the White House. Are there any other key details or nuances surrounding the situation that you believe are important for our viewers to understand? 
Yeah, I just think it's important for your viewers to understand that the more that Donald Trump is impeached, the more that he's arraigned, the more that he's arrested, the more that they raid his private residence, the more that American voters realize that it's because he's putting the American people first. And this is an establishment that has continued to put the American people last. And that's what this is really all about. And as Americans start to wake up, moderate Democrats and independents, this umbrella of MAGA, this MAGA movement is going to only get wider and more inclusive. And I think there's going to be so many people that are waking up to the fact that the United States government has been totally and wholly corrupt. And the only way to correct and rectify this injustice in this system is to reelect Donald Trump as the 47th president of the United States of America. Jason Meister, Republican strategist and former Trump advisory board member, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Questions are mounting over the death of Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin. Russian President Vladimir Putin weighed in on the matter today. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest on that. Russian President Vladimir Putin shared his thoughts about the plane crash in which Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin was reportedly killed. <clears throat> As for this plane crash, first of all, I want to express words of sincere condolence to the families of all who died. I have known Prigozhin for a very long time, since the early 1990s. Putin explained that investigations are currently underway and that it will take some time to find out what happened. A senior consulting fellow at think tank Chatham House cast some doubt on that investigation process. We need to wait until it's absolutely 100% certain that this was Yevgeny Prigozhin on board before assuming that he is actually dead because another feature of dealing with Russia that analysts of Russia get used to very quickly is that so often nothing is what it seems on the surface and what the Russian state says is often very different from what's happened in real life. And Moscow residents seem to agree. This could be, I think, a game. I read there was another plane, just like this one, and he could have been on another plane. It's not like they found him here. Analysts have said that the reported death of Prigozhin may have made Putin look stronger within his own country, but weaker on the battlefield. And the Ukrainian military appears to be taking advantage of Russia's perceived instability. On Wednesday, Ukraine's intelligence directorate released a drone video of a Ukrainian operation in Crimea. It reportedly shows Ukrainian forces blowing up a Russian long-range anti-aircraft missile system. That system was capable of destroying Ukraine's military aircraft from hundreds of miles away. And Ukraine later said they conducted their own special military operation overnight. Ukrainian forces reportedly drove a small motorboat through the dark and infiltrated the western tip of Crimea. They could be seen hanging the Ukrainian flag in Russian-controlled territory, and they just happened to do this on Ukraine's Independence Day. But the moment didn't last long, as gunshots were heard soon afterwards. Ukraine's intelligence directorate said they achieved all goals and inflicted casualties on the enemy. Pentagon spokesperson General Pat Ryder says their initial assessment is that it's likely Prigozhin was killed, but that there's no information suggesting a surface-to-air missile was involved. He provided no further details. Jason Perry, NTD News. And more details have emerged regarding the plane crash in Russia. According to a new report by the Daily Mail, the stewardess on Prigozhin's jet sent a message to her family before the flight. She reportedly told them the plane was delayed due to a technical inspection and undisclosed repairs.
And an American reporter currently jailed in Russia will not come out anytime soon. A Moscow court today reportedly extended his detention for another three months. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich is facing espionage charges in Russia. The U.S. citizen was on a reporting trip over a thousand miles east of Moscow when he was arrested. This was at the end of March. Russian state media now reports a Moscow court today extended his detention until the end of November. Journalists outside the court today were not allowed to witness the proceedings. Russia accuses the reporter of spying on the Russian military-industrial complex on behalf of the U.S. The Wall Street Journal today said it'll continue pushing for the reporter's immediate release. Less domestic oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. The Biden administration is reportedly giving out fewer leases in order to protect whales. Here's the details. Oil companies are preparing to buy leases from the Biden administration next month. In order to drill, they need to lease the land and then apply for a permit. This sale is for areas in the Gulf of Mexico, but they won't be able to buy quite as much as they thought. Bloomberg reports the government will make available 67 million acres. That's 6.4 million acres, or almost 10 percent less than the initial proposal. Biden promised to end offshore drilling many times in his campaign for president, but the sale is required by the Inflation Reduction Act. The Biden administration in July came to an agreement with environmental groups. It agreed to sell 11 million acres less in order to protect a whale species known as Rice's whale. The American Petroleum Institute at the time commented, saying there's no evidence to warrant this far-reaching ban on operations after extensive data collections. It says the Biden administration is blocking American energy. These leases are scheduled to go on auction at the end of September, the final sale required by the Inflation Reduction Act. And the trial for the Idaho University murder suspect has been postponed. Brian Koberger will not go on trial as scheduled on October 2nd. During a court appearance on Wednesday, Koberger waived his right to a speedy trial. He's accused of stabbing to death four University of Idaho students last November. Koberger was a graduate criminology student at Washington State University at the time. He pleaded not guilty to the charges. Koberger's next hearing is expected to take place September 1st. A new trial date will be decided following the hearing. Koberger's attorney says the defense is prepared to challenge the grand jury indictment at the next hearing. Prosecutors in the case say they intend to seek the death penalty. Boeing has recently identified a quality problem in its new 737 MAX model. The defect is expected to delay near-term deliveries of the aircraft. The quality problem involves supplier Spirit Aero Systems. It has resulted in improperly drilled holes on the rear pressure bulkhead. Boeing has an annual delivery target of at least 400 737s this year, but this defect could cause it to miss that target. The airplane maker confirmed that it will delay a delivery to Malaysia Airlines, which was scheduled for August 28th. It's unclear how many jets will need to be fixed and how long the work will take. The FAA said it was aware of the issue and it does not affect the safety of flights. Coming up, a coalition that includes Russia and China is expanding. The BRICS alliance is now accepting six more nations into its fold. What does this mean for the U.S. and for the world? And releasing radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Japan says it plans to do this for the next three decades. Details on this and more when we come back.
A club of developing economies is expanding its power. The BRICS alliance is now welcoming six more countries into its fold. NTD Sam Wong has the details. During a summit in Johannesburg, leaders of the BRICS alliance gathered to welcome six more countries into the bloc. BRICS currently comprises of five nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Now Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are joining the ranks. We have reached agreement on the guiding principles, standards, criteria and procedures of the BRICS expansion process, which has been in discussion for quite a while. Russian President Vladimir Putin did not travel to the summit, as doing so could get him arrested. The International Criminal Court indicted him back in March for his war in Ukraine, but that didn't stop him from joining virtually. I would like to congratulate our new members, who will be working full-scale next year. And I would like to assure all my colleagues that we will continue the work that we have started today to expand the influence of BRICS in the world. The six countries will officially join in January 2024. BRICS was first founded in 2009. The once emerging economies are now pledging to establish a so-called multipolar world in an effort to challenge what they perceive as Western dominance. BRICS represents about a quarter of the global GDP. Its member nations make up around 40 percent of the world's population. Last year, the coalition's total purchasing power officially exceeded G7, a Western-led economic forum, for the first time. What's more, estimates suggest that the bloc will control around 80 percent of the oil reserves on Earth. That's with China already holding the largest stockpile of crude oil. In another aspect of this meeting, the de-dollarization in global trade. Just yesterday, Brazil's president called on the coalition to create new currency for trade and investments between member nations. The goal? To bypass U.S. dollar. Aside from Brazil, several other countries have already been making non-dollar payments. India and the United Arab Emirates recently settled a deal in rupee, and they are planning to do that more in future trade. More than 40 countries are reportedly showing interest in joining BRICS. That include 22 which formally applied. Sam Wong, NTD News. And Japan is releasing radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Is it safe? Japan says the water won't cause significant harm. Not everyone is convinced. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Japan has started releasing slightly radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean from the Fukushima nuclear plant. We plan on releasing continuously 24 hours a day. Japan says it needs to do this because its storage tanks are full. China isn't happy about this. An extremely selfish and irresponsible action that ignores international public interests. China firmly opposes and strongly condemns this. Japanese protesters are worried this will cause big problems in the future. I feel angry and unconvinced. Why, even to this extent, doesn't this country listen to our voices and the voices of the fishermen? Protesters march through the streets, chanting, don't pollute the sea and don't release the radioactive polluted water. They're going to keep releasing the water for more than 30 years. I really want to stop it as soon as possible, even by a day. The International Atomic Energy Agency has agreed to Japan's plan. It said the release meets international standards and that harm to people and the environment would be negligible. 
Critics say the risks have not been fully assessed. Japan plans on releasing 1.3 million tons of the treated water into the Pacific Ocean over the course of three decades. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Despite the protests, scientists generally believe the water is safe. Nuclear facilities, including those in China, Korea and Taiwan, have been discharging treated radioactive waste water into the oceans for decades. France releases almost 500 times more than Japan. And Japan's release of the Fukushima wastewater is coming under close scrutiny. For an in-depth look at the situation and Japan's plan to deal with it, I spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma. Don, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on. Tell us more about what's happening with the wastewater discharge in Japan. Sure, Steph. Um, so he, here's some important details about the amount of water that's being uh, released into the Pacific Ocean. The first batch is equivalent to the size of three Olympic-sized swimming pools, and it's going to be done over the next 17 days. But I have to point out, this is only a small part of the tons of water that have accumulated at the plant. So here's a little background. What happened was the March 2011 earthquake and tsunami destroyed the plant's cooling systems, causing three reactors to melt. It sparked uh, the world's worst nuclear accident since Chernobyl. So releasing the water now is necessary to decommission the plant. Uh, the complete release of the wastewater, which, by the way, it's, is 500 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Incredible, Don. Now, I just want to know, and many people must be asking, is the water safe? Well, the water will be treated uh, until it's meeting government limits. Uh, but at the end of the day, Steph, it's still going to have some radioactivity to it. It won't be zero. Um, Japan and also a UN authorities say the water is safe. But, you know, some environmental activists argue that all possible impacts have not been studied enough. And so how are people responding to this news? You know, of course, uh, you're going to have some people that are concerned in, in situations like this. It's completely normal, by the way. Um, Fukushima's fisheries and tourism industries and its economy are still recovering from the 2011 disaster. So fisheries, uh, fishery groups worry about a further damage to the reputation of their seafood. Uh, fishing unions in Fukushima have urged the government to, uh, for years now to not release the water, arguing it could undo all the work that's done to restore the damaged reputation of the fishery, uh, fisheries. Uh, the head of the National Federation of Fisheries Cooperatives said um, scientific safety and the sense of safety are different. So I actually think this statement is quite true because you know, when you're talking about reputation here, it's really about how people feel. Okay, and looking abroad, you know, China is reacting quite strongly to this as well. What are we seeing? Yeah, you're right, Steph. Um, so in reaction to the water release, China announced an immediate and sweeping ban on all aquatic products from Japan. I mean, this is quite a reaction. I, I think personally it's more nuanced than that, but you know, China has the ability to do this and it's going to do what it wants to do. Um, but by the way, China is the biggest aquatic products market for Japan, Japanese exports. So, you know, Japan may be impacted potentially economically. Um, the country has requested that China immediately lift its import ban. But 
let me point out a potential irony of, of the ban from China. Um, you know, China also releases nuclear wastewater, and Japan says that the amount of a radioactive isotope in their water is actually several times lower when compared to the wastewater water that China releases. That's really interesting to note, and hopefully something we can follow up on. For now, thank you so much, Don Ma. Great to have you on. Thank you, Steph. Coming up, officials identify the gunman in a fatal shooting at a California bar. Three people and the shooter died in the incident. And takeaways from the first GOP presidential debate. The spirited contest had candidates vying for the spotlight. We have analysis on the key moments after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Former President Trump is adding a new lawyer in the Georgia case right before his surrender. Reports say it's because of the new attorney Stephen Sado's experience tackling the state's RICO law. The Pentagon says the leader of the Wagner Group was likely killed in a plane crash in Russia. Authorities are examining the victims' bodies. Japan has begun releasing treated radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Chinese regime is protesting by banning seafood from Japan. A tragedy at a well-known Orange County bar. A gunman took the lives of three victims and injured six others. The suspect was killed by police. NTD's Christina Corona tells us more. A tragic shooting took place inside a popular biker bar here in Orange County, taking the lives of three and leaving the community in mourning. Three people have been killed and several others wounded in a shooting Wednesday evening at Cook's Corner Bar in Trabuco Canyon. Footage posted on the Citizens app shows officials on scene. The shooting occurred shortly after 7 p.m. The Orange County Sheriff's Department took immediate action with deputies arriving at the scene within minutes of the report. I did about 7.04 p.m. Deputies responded to multiple 911 calls of shots being fired in Atkins Corner. The caller stated that the male fired four six shots. About two minutes later at 7.06 p.m., deputies arrived on scene and dispatch could hear gunshots in the background. At 7.08 p.m., deputies then confronted a male subject that was armed with a gun. A deputy-involved shooting occurred, which involved multiple deputies. At this point, the man believed to be involved in the shooting is deceased at the scene. At least one weapon has been recovered at the scene, and we have been made aware that the suspect may be retired law enforcement. The suspect has been identified as 59-year-old John Snowling, a former Ventura Police Department officer who was employed by that agency from July 1986 and retired as a sergeant in February 2014. Four people, including the suspect, were pronounced dead at the scene. According to Cook's Corner Bar's Instagram, the shooting took place on their $8 spaghetti night. According to the Orange County Sheriff's Department, five people were hospitalized with gunshot wounds and two are in critical condition. Among the surviving victims was a suspect's ex-wife who was shot in the facial area. Christina Corona, NTD News, Orange County.
And here to discuss last night's GOP debate and former President Trump's parallel appearance with Tucker Carlson is political analyst and host of Ringside Politics, Jeff Cruer. We spoke earlier today. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. First, I'd like to start with your main takeaways from last night's performance. And were there any standout moments that caught your attention? I thought it was interesting how they all sort of ganged up on uh, Vivek. I thought he was really the center of attention, and uh, he was the one that drove the debate. Uh, to me, he was a big winner. Uh, you know, Chris Christie attacked him, Mike Pence attacked him, Nikki Haley attacked him. So that's really what jumped out to me is that this newcomer, you know, this 38-year-old kid who has never been on the stage before, never run for office before, sort of really, I thought, dominated uh, and, and drove the debate and was really the focus of a lot of attacks from these seasoned politicians. And what do you make of Ron DeSantis's more passive performance? What do you think he was trying to achieve and what was the effect? I don't know. I mean, I saw some polls that said he came in second and, and thought he did okay. I, I really did not think he did that well. I mean, I thought he was sort of wooden he came across to, to me sort of programmed, like he had his talking points. He was trying to get in all his memorized talking points. And he just didn't come across as natural. Like Vivek came across as natural, in command, confident. Ron looked like he was just sort of trying to get all of his talking points in and to me was not as uh, effective. So I think he got hurt a little bit. And at one point, coming back to Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley called him out over his stance over Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel, saying that it shows that he hasn't got foreign policy experience. How do you see that exchange? Well, you know, that's right. And uh, Nikki Haley represents sort of the more establishment Republican view that we need to be getting involved uh, in uh, Ukraine. We need to support our allies. And uh, I think... Um, you know, the other point of view is the more make America great again, America first point of view that really has been uh, led by Donald Trump uh, since he really burst upon the scene. So Vivek is really sort of now echoing what Trump probably would have said in the debate that, wait, we've done too much with Ukraine. We've got to stop all this funding. Maybe we need to look again at uh, putting troops at our border and focusing on our problems here. Now, he's walked away a little bit from the stance about Israel because that is, of course, a uh, top ally of the U.S., and I think he uh, has now backed away from those comments that we need to cut off aid to Israel. And going on to former President Trump, of course, he came up. And how do you think the candidates' views on his role within the party could impact their campaigns? You know, it's obvious that uh, they're still trying to walk their way through it. Uh, it looked to me, again, like most of them uh, we're, we're trying to be supportive of President Trump's most of his policies without being supportive of his current situation. Um, it looks like uh, of the, the eight of them on the stage, most of them said that they would actually uh, still uh, endorse President Trump, even if he was uh, convicted as the nominee. But once again, Vague was the one who really led the way, put his hand up first, and then the others sort of uh, followed. So. I think President Trump loomed large. I think he was another one of the winners in the debate because a lot of people in the crowd were supportive of him. They got on Chris Christie and booed him because he was very anti-Trump. So it was Asa Hutchinson. So the crowd seemed to be on President Trump's side. And it looked like, to me, the number one candidate in the debate, Vivek, was on President Trump's side, too. 
And Trump's interview has been watched at least 220 million times already. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible number. What does that indicate to you about support for him well, as he heads into Fulton County Jail today? I just think it's amazing. I mean, that, I mean, what a stroke of genius to counter program against the debate by doing that. Obviously, the viewership on that was much higher than the debate. And it was some interesting topics that they discussed, very interesting, that I had not heard him really discuss before. So it shows his brilliance as someone that knows the American people and knows how to get attention and knows how to get his supporters fired up. And I think this is a good way for him to go into this very difficult situation today, knowing that he's got the support of a large number of Americans who are going to be with him as he has to go through this difficult uh, process. Fourth time in a few months, it's really unprecedented and unbelievable that he has to go through all this. Jeff Carrere, political analyst and the host of Ringside Politics, thank you so much. Great to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Coming up. A torn elbow ligament it means baseball's biggest star can no longer pitch. But can Shohei Otani stay in as a hitter? And a happy ending for a pair of sea lions. They've been released back into the wild after they were treated for algae bloom poisoning. This and more when we return. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at Shohei Otani's injury. That's right, Steph. Otani has a torn ligament in his right elbow and is out for the season as a pitcher anyway. Now not only does this put a damper on the Angels' dwindling playoff chances, it throws a wrench in his free agency sweepstakes. The 29-year-old two-way star may be the most coveted player in the history of the game, given that he's an all-star pitcher and hitter a skill set not seen since Babe Ruth a century ago. But should this injury result in him missing a big chunk of next season as a pitcher, teams may be wary to count on his two-way skills going forward. After all, Otani missed all of 2019 and most of 2020 with a sprain of the same ligament that required Tommy John surgery. Now, Otani was still able to be a hitter during most of that time, though not at the level he is today. The Japanese lefty leads the major leagues with 44 home runs and will likely be able to stay in the lineup for the remainder of the season. And in college sports, the ACC will apparently restart talks this week regarding conference expansion, specifically adding Cal, Stanford, and maybe even Southern Methodist, according to multiple reports. The league reportedly discussed adding Cal and Stanford earlier this month, but were unable to come to a consensus. This time, though, they might have more of a financial incentive to vote them in, as the prospective schools may be willing to accept a reduced share of what should be an increase in conference media revenue with their additions. Cal and Stanford are currently two of the four remaining Pac-12 schools, while SMU is part of the American Athletic Conference. Now for your sports viewing schedule tonight, just five baseball games are on, though one features a battle of division leaders in the American League as the Minnesota Twins play at the Texas Rangers. And in the NFL, preseason play continues tonight as the Pittsburgh Steelers play at the Atlanta Falcons, while the Philadelphia Eagles host the Indianapolis Colts. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, over to you.
Thanks, Dave. And finally, a happy ending for a pair of sea lions. They had been sickened by a toxic algae bloom, but were released back into the ocean after their treatment and recovery. NTD's Stephanie Sakal brings us more. The sea lion pair named Sophie and Gracie are among the lucky ones that now swim free after the Marine Mammal Care Center helped them recover from a toxic algal bloom poisoning. Located in San Pedro, the center helps many sea creatures, including sea lions and dolphins, that become sick from the widespread of toxic algal blooms during the summer. And we went through, gosh, we went through 150,000 pounds of food just in the first six months of the year. That was the budget we had for the entire year. This toxic bloom produces a substance called domoic acid, which affects the brains of marine animals, leaving them confused, tired, or aggressive. Sea lions are particularly vulnerable because they eat shellfish, which eat the toxic algae. The care center staff and volunteers worked hard to bring the sick animals in for treatment. Marine Mammal Care Center CEO John Warner says community support and donations are important for their facility. The community stepped up. Uh, we've been uh, just really uh, blessed and thankful to all of the folks who have donated uh, through hearing it in the media, uh, hearing about it on the beaches. People who had gathered on Wednesday morning cheered in excitement as they watched Sophie and Gracie return to the ocean. For more information on how to volunteer or contribute to the ongoing care of these amazing creatures, visit marinemammalcare.org. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember that you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.